It's Kiki here. And Alex. Today we're making mountains out of musicals with a regional story about discovery and adventure. Ollie Mills chats to us about Mallory on the Mountain. Why Beam is such a vital showcase for new musicals. And why COVID lockdown provided an unexpected opportunity for writing. Welcome to Making Making a a Musical, Musical, the Future of of British Musical musical Theatre. Kiki, I think we've peaked on today's episode. We've got Ollie Mills, writer and director of Mallory on the Mountain. Oh, I see what you, oh, I see what you did there. Peaked. <laughs> I get it. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to find out more um, because this is a regional story. Uh, and as a man of the regions myself, um, I think we need more of these stories on our stages and particularly in musical theatre. So Ollie, tell us a bit more about Mallory on the Mountain and where the idea comes from. Cool. Yeah. So Mallory on the Mountain is based on a really gripping true story, that of George Mallory, who is a climber and explorer from the Northwest, which is my neck of the woods. And uh, it focuses on his um, valiant efforts to conquer the mountain in 1924, which ended in failure when he and his climbing partner disappeared, presumed never to be seen again. Um, But many discoveries over the subsequent years have reignited the possibilities that George may have made it to the summit after all. And at the center of the mystery um, is a missing photo of his wife that he'd promised to leave at the summit. So there's this lovely romantic uh, through line to this massive global adventure. But it begins up north in Cheshire, which is where I I grew up. And uh, my way into this story was uh, through family friends, I guess, came across a film called The Wildest Dream, which was an IMAX movie that came out 2007, eight. And it features a recreation of this climb filmed in IMAX. It's a stunning film. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Are we allowed to say that? Other supplies are available. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's. It, I was just blown away by it. And then I later found a biography about George and discovered that he is not just this great explorer, but had a really vivid and interesting life right from his childhood in the North. And what was it about the story, you know, through the film, through the book, that was, uh, what was the moment where you were like, this is a musical? I knew I was going to be asked this question. <laughs> I tried to think what my answer would be. And I think, I mean, to be honest, it is a question that when, when you're involved in creating stuff, it is a question that comes up a lot. And I think that the truth of the matter is, is when I was either watching the film initially, I think I was excited by the idea of how it might be recreated on stage. I've always been a very visual storyteller. So I'm thinking about set and hydraulics and, all, and lights and fog and all that sort of stuff. Um, but really, I think I just, the, the the images kept, became so clear to me when I was reading this book about his life and I, I could just see it working. So I guess I've later added context to, the, to my answer to that question, which is not only do you have these really exciting visual scenes where you're bringing in physical theatre, maybe interesting set pieces if budget allows, um, but you've also got this lovely romantic story, really weird and wacky relationships, human relationships he had with people that he met whilst he was growing up. So it just seemed so clear to me that this is a story that would work on stage. And over the eight years or so that I've been developing it, I've, I've found the numerous ways in which that might be done to reasonable success. So take us back to the beginning of you as a writer. How did you start writing? How did you start writing musicals? So I went to the University of York where I studied music and I've not really had any other particular musical theatre training or, or 
or any of the sort of music qualifications. I've just kind of got out of uni and I started creating stuff. I did a lot of um, society stuff in uni, creating shows, building new work. And then when I graduated, I had a great opportunity to create a World War One commemorative piece that was done in association with Manchester City Council for the 100th anniversary of the First World War. And that was... A bit of a baptism of fire. Suddenly I was writing musicals. It was always something I'd, I'd wanted to do, but here was an opportunity to to create something to put straight in front of an audience. And and I guess from there, I've just slowly been ticking away at, at creating my own work. And where things really started to kick off, I guess, was 2021. I created my own company, Imaginality Productions, as a platform to get stuff from page to stage, essentially, because one of the, one of the biggest bridges, as a lot of fellow creators will know, is getting things to a point where producers might go, oh yeah, maybe that works. And so that was kind of my purpose with with the company and it seems to have worked out pretty well so far. That's just taking the script, getting it in front of, in a room with some actors, getting it on its feet. And yeah, so in a way, my my relationship with my writing career has just grown organically over time and it's largely been experience-based and I've just taken what opportunities have come my way. And there's a lot of people I could thank for for that process. I won't take all the time to do it now, but you know, um, in in the case of Mallory, the, the Lowry and Salford and, and Hope Mill Theatre in Manchester have been very, very uh, fundamental in the development of that work. In my work generally, I'm loving working with Fifty Three Two, also a, a Manchester-based venue, who are really excited about new work and helping lots of creatives in Manchester and the broader Northwest get stuff on its feet. So that's kind of where I've found my progress I guess and if you could unpick those relationships if we could potentially distill that into how other writers may be able to engage or access those those venues and and organizations how what was your meet cute for lack of a better term (laughs) with these organizations was it was it a blind email was it just putting yourself in the room in in networking events so a lot of these relationships for me have come about from meeting people somewhere or perhaps, you know, as is often the case, I know someone who knows someone. Um, but I don't think, I don't think that is the, the immediate answer just because you know, someone who knows someone doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get in the room with that, with that person. And my relationship with the Lowry, for instance, has been one that's built slowly over a period of time. They've sort of kept an eye on what we're doing. And it was only when I had Mallory in a really quite finished form that I was able to kind of go back to them and say, I think this might be something we could, we could work together on. And, uh, I was very grateful they gave us a chance initially in, in 2021, uh, to do a little, what they call curtain raiser, uh, which is part of their rewrites festival. And then we came back the, the following year with the full two act concert and put it in front of an audience. And yeah, so that was kind of something that grew slowly over time. And then I mentioned 53.2, which is a venue I'm loving working with at the moment. I just invited them to our rehearsed reading at Hope Mail Theatre that we did in 2021. And that's how I built, started building relationship with Simon there and, and the other people that work at the venue. And yeah, so it's just, I think it's about being present. And um, I was really bad at networking for a long time and I'm still pretty bad at it, but I feel like I'm getting a bit better at it. And it's just putting yourself out there and having the conversations that maybe feel a little bit awkward to begin with. But, you know, people are generally, in my experience, are lovely. And you, you, you do often get somewhere just by having the conversation. So the key thing it sounds like to me is is being able to identify which venues and organizations near to you are supporting the kind of work that you want to make and then inviting them to 
anything and everything that you're doing, <laughs> hoping that they come along. And if they don't, keeping those relationships warm, keep sending those emails. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, a, a lot of people are very busy, especially in funded organizations. Time is squeezed, capacity is squeezed. And actually that kind of persistence, it's something we talk about a lot on the podcast is um, that kind of tenacity to keep reaching out, to keep pushing your work is so, so important. Yeah, um, I, th I think for years, some relationships can sort of just exist in a bit of a void, like you, your ships passing in the night and, you know, you, you maybe saw them across the, across the room at a show you went to see, maybe there was some new work. Um, and then a few years later, you sort of have the opportunity to chat to them and then maybe the timing isn't right. But then even two months after that, you suddenly find yourself in the room with them again. You think, oh, actually, now this might be something that, that could work out and, you know, something could come of this. And it's just, as I say about, in my experience, being present in the room, putting myself out there, having the awkward conversations that previously I would have avoided like the plague. Yeah. I think you're spot on. And, and speaking from a venue perspective, the one thing I think I always want to find are the people that I would want to work with. You know, venues grow as shows grow, as people grow, that, that relationship can continue to develop. And that person may be a wonderful fit. And I might be like, I think you're great but that project is not for us. So don't be turned down or, or upset. Disheartened. Disheartened. Thank you. That's exactly the word. Um, if it's a no at that time, that doesn't mean it's always going to be a no. So yeah, don't just keep going. Tenacity was a, a very good word, Alex. So personal growth is a, is a major theme in Mallory on the Mountain and kind of overcoming adversity. So I thought, tell us a bit more about Ruth and George and, and how they, their sort of stories are very identifiable. So I really relate to George in a number of ways um, because he is just the personification of ambition. That's ultimately what drew me to him as a, as a character. And ultimately it, became, it becomes his fatal flaw and you know, he pushes himself to, to the brink. Um, I think I mentioned in that chat that it is a bit of an Icarus story, but I do avoid the comparison because it's been used recently in another biopic show that we won't mention. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is that similar sort of thing that I think is one of those universal stories that people do just, just love because they see there's someone that is just ultimately driven by this, this undying ambition to achieve this, this one thing, which maybe just completely unattainable and as it turned out for George that was the case or was it so I think particularly people in the creative industry can relate to George and that's that need to keep pushing with with your ambitions and in the case of of Ruth Ruth is um she's a really exciting vivid character in her own in her own way she's she's the reason I guess she is the um the rational amongst George's cloud of irrationality I guess and um, that's not to say that she's, she's boring or anything like that. You know, she is just gr really grounded and she is controlling the the situation back home in a way that, um, George completely washes his responsibility of. And I think ev everyone can possibly relate to, to one or the other. And I think, um, my wife particularly will probably relate to, <laughs> to Ruth somewhat, whereas I relate a little bit more to George. Not that that is the parallel that I've, I've depicted in the show in any way, shape or form, just to be clear. Um, but yeah, I, th I think people will see, see themselves as being that person who has ambition and does nothing but aim for it, or that person who does have, dr have dreams and ambitions of their own, but maybe does it in a little bit more of a muted way and, and sees a little bit more logic and sense in the steps that they're taking, perhaps. How do you um, decide how to depict that real person? Because obviously all real people have flaws uh, as well as their positive sides. And that must be a really difficult balance to hit. 
It is tricky. Yeah. I remember after the, the first showing in 2021, a lot of people came away saying, um, George is a bit of a, um, a word I can't say, uh, George is a bit of an idiot, you know, and he is maybe unlikable as a, as a hero. And that is something that's been tricky to battle with is if your central character is someone that people are struggling to get on board with. And obviously in rewriting the show and reworking it, I'm trying to find a, a way to, to flesh out a bit more the way in which George's ambition and his drive grew over his younger years and perhaps the relationships he had with other people and the experiences he had led to that ambition in a way that he can no longer deny it. You know, we want the audience to be with him up there on the mountain and they should want to get to the top as much as he does. That's kind of where I want them to be. And hopefully through more rewrites and workshopping, that's where where we'll get to. So the first song that we're going to listen to from Mallory on the Mountain is called Standing Tall. Give us a little bit of context, I guess, on how that fits in, in these characters' journeys and where it sits within the show. So George is 800 feet from the top and he's got to make a decision as to whether he goes to the top or turns back. He's got Sandy with him, who is a weak climber than he is, has probably conked out a bit earlier. And so George has to ultimately decide, does he give up and turn back or does he push onto the summit alone and achieve his dream? This was it I can't return again So now's our time Now or never Everest, my friend I've conquered church spires I've scaled the trees But there you are just standing tall, always standing tall. I should go home, be the father my children need. Not a climber or writer, but the teacher I'm supposed to be. Instead of being here in this wasteland Where I can't feel my feet But what a beautiful wasteland it is to me I've been holding high hopes Holding high hopes for you Have you been holding high hopes, holding high hopes for me too? I've failed my family, and if here's where it ends, well then I'll only fail myself like I failed my friends. I've had my setbacks, I've had my falls and defeats 
I'm not a scratch on the man I set out to be. I'm not getting younger and my legs feel weak. But there you are, just standing tall, always standing. I think that song is absolutely stunning. And I actually first heard it at the Beam Conference this year. And actually, that's where you and I first met. So it's really exciting to see, as we were talking about those venue artist relationships developing, Mm -hmm. about watching where this one started and, and has come to thus far. But it's my understanding that Standing Tall was written quite early on in your writing process. So take us back to the beginning. Like, let's get into the nitty gritty of how have you written this? So I started finding those really pivotal moments. And actually, um, so Standing Tall was probably the third song that I wrote. Uh, so I can go a little bit further back. I wrote a song called A Promise, which was a sort of prologue, which in a very documentary style, just detail everything you need to know that essentially I give in the synopsis, which is uh, George is dead. He didn't make it to the top. He left the photo there. And so the audience within the first three minutes kind of know where we're at. It's a little heavy handed. It may change. So anyone listening to this that eventually ends up seeing the show at some point, it don't necessarily expect that to, <laughs> to be how the show opens. But then I wrote a, a sequence that detailed George's younger years, which did actually also take to the stage at, uh, at Beam as well, which is a song called The Climb, not to be confused with the Miley Cyrus one. And that is the, the sort of fun energy side. So I'd had this sort of dark, ominous opening and then this fun, energetic thing. And then I thought, right, in order to fill in the gaps in the middle, I need to know where we're going. And so that led me really quite quickly to Standing Tall. I was going back to all different accounts of the of the expedition in 1924, different versions of biographical versions that have been written much later on to actual accounts written in the camps back in 1924 and thinking well where would he be mentally at that point and what would be resting on his shoulders and that's where standing tall came from so yeah it probably was the third third or fourth song that I wrote for the show and it gave me my bookend so I know the audience are going to start by knowing this is this is everything you need to know he's dead let's move on and then at the end of the show you've got this this heroic ballad that it, that we're going to work towards and then everything in the middle just sl- slowly start to appear after that and how do you physically sit down to write are you a post-its kind of guy spreadsheets big notebooks any and all of the above. I don't use post-its as much as I should because I'm a, I've mentioned before I'm a really visual person and it would help me. And I think as I'm developing the show from here on in, I am going to have a wall of post-its. I've, that's a task for myself. But It can look like a mountain. You can make yes, it into yeah, a like mountain. Yes, yeah, like a triangle. I know, I know, I'm <laughs> we good. We just have a big green one, a gold or green one at the top that's like you finish. Yes. You know? um, no, so I, I tend to... I tend to start with music. So I'll try and think, what does this moment sound like musically? And sometimes I might have a whole tune that, uh, and then nothing, nothing lyrical comes for ages. More often than not, I'll have what feels like a verse and a chorus, and then I'll sit down with 
a, a handwritten notebook and just sort of sketching out some lyrics, writing buzzwords. I love doing um, sort of mind maps or whatever, where you just literally write down any word he might sing and then start to formulate the lyrics from that. That kind of plays a big part in my process. And yeah, slowly but surely, I then sort of shimmy along. So once I've written a verse and a chorus, well, then I think, well, is that the verse? Is that the chorus? Is that where the song should start? More often than not, I find the first bit I write ends up as verse two. I don't know why. It just I just always feel there's maybe a little bit more of a way into a song. That was the case for, for Standing Tall. The holding high hopes line is something that actually repeats throughout the show. But the very first time I wrote it was, um, it was later added to Standing Tall. The first time it appeared in my writing process was in Happy Life, which may be a song we're going to hear in a little bit. So have you, uh, you've mentioned you're, you're led in your writing process by music. Yeah. So then you come in and you're going to fill in the book to, to, to get you from, as you say, the point A to, to the end. So you've got say a first draft. How then do you start making all of those things work together? Have you had to kill a lot of darlings to to make it all work? Or is that your process? Yeah, this is so interesting. I was just having this uh, conversation with a filmmaker friend of mine recently about, yeah, killing your, killing your babies, killing your darlings, because the I think The Promise is a great example of of that, the, that being the opening song where it just details the the backstory i am pretty convinced that song's gonna go but it's it was the first thing i wrote so i'm like it's just staying for a bit because it's really helpful because people appreciate it <laughs> that's and so you you continuously try and justify the keeping the things that you've um that you've created but a lot of stuff has come in the meantime that's since gone you know a, a lot of a lot of the flashback sequences in mallory are like long drawn out five to eight minute sequences where it's like uh, a, a refrain or, or chorus that comes back and then in between under lots of under over lots of underscore you've got dialogue and scenes happening to sort of get us through periods of time quite quickly and I mean there's one sequence that is his university years which has gone from I think about 12 minutes to to maybe six in the latest draft and I was very fortunate to have a lot of um very talented very skilled very um very aware uh, talented people around me that were continuously telling me that that section needed to be shorter but I just loved it so much that I I kept trying to justify it so it yeah it's an interesting process you do find yourself having to continuously make those decisions and it never gets easier as I you know I've been working on the show seven years seven eight years now and yeah (laughs) so happy life is the second song that we're gonna listen to you teased uh, it a little bit earlier but Mm. give us a bit more of a sense of where it comes in the show and what it's about so Side note, I wrote this in a cafe, um, one of the big branded ones, I won't say which one. Um, and it is probably one of the first times I sat and wrote a set of lyrics before going to music. So completely contradicting what I said before, I have on occasion done that. And that was because at that period in time, I was really trying to investigate the character of Ruth and just work out who this character was, because I didn't want Ruth to be just a supporting character. You know, the the... The title is Mallory on the Mountain, um, which may at some point change, but that's an entirely different story. But the Mallory of the title, for me, isn't necessarily just George. It could it could be Ruth as well, because it's it's really important. He was able to do what he was able to do because of the sacrifices she was making at home. And she's this really headstrong, switched-on character that is essentially holding their, holding their life up. And this song, she's talking about initially her dreams her aspirations which is of this this um with this happy life but 
through the course of the song, she goes from just saying, I would just, I'd, I'd take a normal life. Can we have a normal life? Um, and then if she can achieve that, she'd like maybe just something with a bit more peace then. Let's just go a step further. So it's normal and it's peaceful, but really ultimately she has this ambition as well that is essentially withheld from her because of George's hubris. I sit close by and hear their prayers for you They're scared for their daddy, you see Because daddy says the mountains are dangerous And though they trust in everything you've achieved Don't they have a right to see you?
I think what struck me listening to that song is, you know, thinking about um, Ruth and just how far away from her husband she was. So he's off in Tibet, Nepal. um, and, And in 1924, you know, you can't just bring someone up um maybe you could send a letter but there's a bit of a contact delay on that maybe a telegram maybe a telegram about about 10 days yeah yeah yeah. so he when he left he said to her you'll hear within 10 days if we made it to the top and she did hear within 10 days but it was a telegram saying something quite to the contrary so yeah um but it is that's that does play quite a big role but i think there's ways in which we can hopefully juxtapose that visually when we really start thinking about staging it and Ruth will be on stage with George stood just a couple of meters away from her, but hopefully you'll feel that massive void in between. That's hopefully what that song is trying to achieve. Mm. That really tugs on that, those heartstrings, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, mm. I've got a bit of a chill down my spine, <laughs> I have to say. That'll be the frostbite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First warning signs, turn back, turn back. <laughs> so talking of achieving things, um, what's next for Mallory on the Mountain? What have you got in the, in the plans? So 2024 is going to be a huge year for the show because it will be 100 years since the story took place, 1924. That's when he went missing. And I know there are going to be a lot of efforts to to talk about this. Uh, and there have already been a few because the first reconnaissance was in 1921. So from 2021, there have been ex- exhibitions and, and all sorts of things. And there have been uh, continuing search efforts as well because George has been found on the mountain uh but Sandy Irvin his climbing partner hasn't and he may have more evidence um which may prove one way or the other but that's almost an entirely different story but 2024 for for my show is hopefully going to see it on its feet and what we are really excited about is we are working with some northern venues to bring it to the stage uh hopefully in the not too distant future i can't say too much more than that and i'm looking at you too because i know you know a little bit more than i, I know say, nothing but, <laughs> but um but it's very exciting that uh, it feels right that next year is the year to to kind of pull it out in in full and that's that's so exciting that's so exciting and and not to take it back a step, but again, going back to how we met, which was at Beam, mm. I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of these conversations about quite solid future life came from that Beam showcase. Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, going back to what I was saying earlier about networking and putting yourself out there, one of the trickiest things was uh, just walking up to people and just being like hi i'm ollie i'm presenting matter on the mountain who are you and it's the sort of thing that can make even the most confident person really uncomfortable but actually it was such a good experience because everyone was doing it and it helped that it was really beautifully sunny in oxford and people were like stood out on the pavement with gin and it was just great and so everyone was having a really really good time but i think just being surrounded by all these other creatives all these other people that are in exactly the same boat some people have a little bit less further on some people are a little bit uh you know considerably further along with with their relationships and yeah it just it was just so encouraging to to be part of that it felt like everyone was on an equal standing and all the people that were there visiting from the industry that weren't presenting were just equally excited and happy to talk to to all of us which is great and yeah i embarked upon some really exciting conversations that have certainly implications for mallory but in other instances may involve 
things that happen elsewhere at another time, you know, whether it's nothing to do with Everest at all, but could be entirely different collaborations. And it, and it all came from just two days of just chatting to people from all over the country. It was great. Such a, such a worthwhile experience. That's amazing. Mm. I think we're all really excited to see, hopefully, confirmations of this future Live yeah. 2024 mm. you know, sh- productions. <laughs> I know we'll be making trips up north for sure. Mm. Making a Musical is produced and hosted by Alex Jackson and Kiki Stevenson for The Other Palace. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you're listening to help us share new British musical theatre with audiences all around the world. You can submit your new musical to be featured on the podcast at theotherpalace.co.uk. That's it from us. Join us next time for more Making Making a Musical, musical, the the future future of British British musical musical theatre.